Well, on the morning of July 5th, I received an email from the camp that uh, my two oldest daughters were at at that time. My oldest as a staff member at the camp and my second daughter, Morgan, as a camper. The email uh, informed me to tell me that there had been a multi-car crash at the camp. It had killed one of the staff members and critically injured four other counselors. Now, this is all the way down in southern Missouri, and you know, as much as I said in my mind they would have called me if something had happened to my daughter, I went into a little bit of a panic, called the camp. Um, my daughter, who worked in the office, uh, her, one of her friends picked up the phone, um, gave the phone to my daughter, and got to talk a little bit about what had happened. There's uh, trips that the campers take away from the camp for different ropes course and things like that. There had been a trip away from camp. Uh, A truck from the opposing lane had drifted into the lane where the counselors were driving. It hit them straight on. It killed those two drivers immediately and then killed one of the counselors, a 20-year-old from Purdue University, right there on the scene. young girl had become a very close friends with my daughter, Ellie, uh, during work week, and they had uh, become close friends and bonded in that time. And uh, also, my second daughter, Morgan, was on the trip that this accident happened at. This is a camp that both Aaron and I attended, myself, for 10 years and this is the first time Morgan had gone as a, as a camper and first time Ellie as a staff member. The only death I have heard of in this camp's 100-year history, and it happened in the time that both my two daughters are there. It's a lot to process for Aaron and I. Here we are, hundreds of miles away from our daughters, and they are uh, still going to be there for 10 more days thought about the devastation of a camp that we beloved and loved dearly. The family was affected by this accident, the many many families and those two that were critically injured. And also just thinking about, you know, the prayers that we had had during this time that our daughters would have a good time at camp. They would grow in their faith, that it'd be a positive experience. Needless to say, it was a time of frustration in my prayers with God. What are you doing? Here they are, 10 more days. I don't really get to talk to them very often and process with them of what's happening. I can't talk to Morgan as she's a camper there other than by letter writing. What are you doing in this moment? Do you have those times? What are you doing, God, in these moments? What are you doing in this season? Do you ever wonder, is he good? Does he really care for me? Does he really care for this world? The psalm we're going to look at today puts us in the middle of that doubt. It puts us in the middle of that situation, of that angst and that pain and that prayer. And the psalmist, he takes us on this journey as he works through these questions of God's goodness, he is there, 
of his own pain. So let's look together, shall we? Psalm 77. Let's put it in your worship guide. Please pay attention as we look at God's word. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearing. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years at the right hand of the Most High. I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The word of the Lord. For those who have that sermon sidekick, here's a word, a big word, theodicy. It's a great philosophical word through the ages. It's taking Greek words of theos, God, and diotos, justice, justice. And it really is a philosophical kind of question that's been asked through time. How can there be an all-powerful God that is good but allow evil? Again, a grand philosophical question asked throughout the ages. And when you hear the word theodicy, that's the question you think of. How can a good and all-powerful God allow evil throughout scripture the question of theodicy comes up it's not foreign to christianity in the bible the great thing about the bible is it has these different genres and with these different genres it looks at even this question of theodicy through different angles for example if i was reading narrative like genesis or things like job i would see that in the narrative like Examples of Joseph, where he was sold into slavery by his brothers. But then we see the great plan that God had. We get things like, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
or if we read Job and his life and how much has been taken away from him, and we hear things like this, where were you when I laid earth's foundation? Then you go to the prophets, you can see that evil seems to be a result of human sin, the corruption of the good. You might go to the epistles and the letters in the New Testament, and there you get more deductive logic talking about the questions about theodicy. Realizing that God is above all things, so we cannot see what always he's using for his glory. So he's using it all for his good. Or you read the Gospels and you see the narrative of Christ, how God himself faced suffering and evil. And he took our sins so that we could be redeemed from a broken world. These are the different angles of the different genres of scripture. Look at this question of theodicy. But when we get the Psalms, we even get a new kind of look at this question. Here we get experience, emotion, prayer. Really the beautiful thing about the Bible, it takes all the aspects of the human person, even different areas of our lives, we look at things differently. Maybe more logically, some of us, more emotionally. Some of us more experientially. Some of us looking at through history. And here in the Psalms, we get a lament. Specifically, Psalm 77. A psalm of lament. A psalm that answers questions of theodicy. Questioning God's goodness as we see the psalmist struggle through it. Through it. Some of us need this kind of approach when we are going through trials, suffering of someone you love, maybe your own physical suffering, maybe being treated unjustly. And if the church just comes and throws at you Romans 8.28, and we know through all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called to his purposes, we'd like to throw the Bible right back at them. Here is Psalm 77. I would not want to to hear Romans 8.28 when I got that email from the camp or heard from Ellie. And I've spent some time over the past month and a half meditating on this psalm. We see in verses 1 through 9 that here the psalmist is pouring out his distress to God. For some of us, it might be surprising seeing this in Scripture. You can talk this way to God? (laughs) This is in the Bible? Three surprises I see in the first nine verses. One is you can have a consistent angst to God. You know, the word angst we seem to use against teenagers that are having maybe relationship issues. And maybe sometimes we think just grow out of angst. But if you read the Psalms, you read the Puritans, you realize these people live in angst. It's okay. It's okay to cry out. It's okay to be in this perpetual nature over time. And you see this in the psalm. It's in the perfect tense, meaning it's a perpetual nature. It's repeated, I cry aloud to to God, aloud to God. Repeated, he's troubled. He's moaning. It says his spirit faints. 
has to sleep with them. He's honest about his suffering, and he lays it all on the line. Some of us might not be familiar with this kind of emotion or angst. Uh, we're a Northern European kind of culture here in Wisconsin. And if you know a little bit about Wisconsin, you might realize maybe because you're new to this culture, that if you're in wintertime in Wisconsin, you don't complain about the cold in Wisconsin ice. Okay? You just don't. We're not going to lament with you about the cold. We're just say, yeah, it's cold. Deal with it. That's just our jam. It is what it is. Some of us might need to maybe express a little bit more emotion of where we are. Scripture doesn't just say, suck it up. It says you can pour your distress out. It's okay. The psalmist is not naive to cry out to God. Jesus himself in Hebrews, it says, he gave loud cries in tears to his father. Surprise one, you can have consistent angst for God. Surprise two, comfort doesn't come right away, even if you are in sustained prayer. This is not a fleeting prayer conversation. The psalmist meditates, it says. The psalmist remembers. The psalmist considers. It is a diligent search. And the psalmist is sitting in it. He's thinking through it. And the response? His soul refuses to be comforted. He thinks about God and he moans. He meditates and his spirit thinks. He even says, God is the one that keeps me from being able to sleep. The psalmist can't even speak. When he thinks about God, he thinks about pain and suffering. This is not a quick resolution. Somehow, some of us think, if I pray, if I meditate, if I spend time with God, then everything is going to be resolved. I'm going to feel cheery. I'm going to be fine. That's not always the way it works. And here we see that through the psalmist. And even the psalmist thinks back about the days of old, how God provided him in the past, in his own life. And it does not comfort him, thinking about his own experience. That was what was really hard for me, hearing about what was going on for my daughters. This camp was such a huge place of spiritual growth for me. It, I would always come back to think about the camp and what I had experienced there and what I had gone through and how I had these conversations with God. And even to now think back on it, now I'm thinking about what my daughters are going through. And I couldn't even go to that place. one, sustained angst. Number two, resolution doesn't come right away. And number three, what could be surprising for some of us is that there are questions to God asking about his core nature. 
just five questions here, and they are pretty straightforward and harsh. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Here is that word has said that's used over and over again in the Old Testament that God is steadfast in his love. He is caring. He keeps his promises. And now the psalmist is wondering, is he? Is he really good? It's almost, he goes to the heart of it. He doesn't beat around the bush. Sometimes I think we fail to go to the source of what we're really angry at. Maybe we're angry maybe at our life situation and choices we made. Maybe we're angry at other people. Maybe we're angry at ourselves. But some of us as Christians don't think we can go to God about this. If God is all-powerful, he's all-good, he's sovereign over all things, then anything that is happening to us, if we're angry, it should go to him. He is the one in control of all things. Do you ever really have that conversation with him? God, what are you doing? Help me. Are you good? Do you talk about it with God? See, this is not Christianity, stay in line, be happy. Psalmist shows it's not out of the ordinary to wrestle with God and have doubts. Some of us, our problem is that we do not get angry. And in that, we're actually not talking about what is happening in our lives. We stuff in it. We minimize it. We give up actually going to God about what is happening, that he's not big enough to deal with it. See, what's beautiful about this psalm is the psalmist is going to battle and conversing with God about what is happening. John Green, he's a New York Times bestseller, a lot of fiction. He wrote a famous book that maybe some of you have seen in the movie, False in Our Stars. Before he became an author, he was a hospital chaplain. He was doing some internships there as a chaplain, and his desire was to go to seminary and become a pastor. One evening when he was a call in the hospital, a three-year-old boy came into the hospital and had been very badly burned. The cries of the young boy, he just cannot get out of his mind how loud they were. He saw doctors and nurses and family members very traumatized by the scene, and he was too. He had to get gum from a nurse to be able to cover up the smell of the burn, how traumatic it was. And in the break room, he overheard the attending physician say, that boy is not going to make it. On a podcast recounting the scene, he said, I couldn't see God within that experience. And because of that, as a chaplain, I, could, I couldn't do my job as a chaplain. Especially if I didn't believe that God was there. John Green left the chaplaincy. He didn't go to seminary. And he stopped going to church. Have 
you've been there, maybe you're there right now. I cannot see God in this experience, as John Green says. How can you be good if this is what happens? How can you be good if you put me in this marriage that I wrestle with these issues, if this tragedy is happening to me? there's any encouragement, I would hope that you're not alone. That here the psalmist is going through this and working through these kinds of experiences. Well, what is the psalmist going to do? In verses 10 through 20, we see his strategy. You see, he's given his complaints against God, and the verdict he's gotten first has not been good. It's been very bad. The moaning, the not hearing, just the troubles. And then he says, I'm going to appeal this case. And what appeal am I going to give? Look at me in verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Here he's talking about the power of God. I'm going to meditate on what God has done. And you see this word remember is then used over and over again. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. And then you see the psalmist moves from I to you. He moves to the character of God who God is and what he has shown, meditating on what God has done. And he meditates on God's power to the Israelites. Freedom from Egypt, you see Jacob and Joseph, Moses and Aaron, freedom from this slavery. He uses Exodus language, talking about the Red Sea being parted and being freed from the Egyptians as they are swallowed up. He uses language that is from Moses' song in Exodus. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds? Whether this psalmist saw it or not, he probably did not. He lives in the faithfulness of God from his people, and he knows of these things that have happened from the stories of old. Sometimes I wonder about the Israelites that were actually in that moment that they are trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army coming and what they said to Moses in those times. You've led us out here to die? It'd be better if we were slaves in Egypt. Were there no graves for us there? And you wonder, in just that short span of all those ten miracles that happened in Egypt to get Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, that they have forgotten what God had done. And here they stood in the desert between the Red Sea and the Egyptians, and they lamented like the psalmist did, God, where are you? They too were clouded by their own experience. But now the psalmist remembers what God did in that situation. He goes and meditates on God's faithfulness to his people. 
here's the thing about being a teenager. In the moment of pain and suffering, we're so consumed by it. We're so angry. We're so frustrated. It's so hard to see outside of that moment. I was just on vacation, right? I love the cabin. And I'm having such a wonderful time. But there are new neighbors that came to visit us midway through my cabin experience that have moved in next to us in our cabin. And they have a dog that continuously barks. And they smoke. And here's the thing. This beautiful time I was having, wonderful time with God, reading some great books, I became so angry, this became the focus of everything. And I tried. I mean, I, I would do prayer, I would go on the porch, I'd do my, my time cooking, all these things to try to get this moment out, and I just can't. And sometimes all I had to do is rely on God's faithfulness and who he is. Isn't this the gospel, though? Is not the psalmist progression the same of Jesus himself? In Gethsemane, what does he say? I was sorrowful unto death. Take this cup from me. This is God himself in that moment, facing the cross, being consumed by everything around him, trying to think clearly, crying out. And what can he do but go to his father and just trust in his faithfulness, but not as I will, but as you will. In that moment, even the God of the universe that knew the final product, even he in that moment was struggling. That should give us encouragement that in moments we cannot see clearly. But the good news of the gospel is that we can even look back to Jesus and his death in his resurrection. And we can look at that and say, there is God. He is faithful. And that when we question God's goodness, that we can remember his faithfulness. That he was the one that parted the seas. He's the one that took our sin. That he is the one that went to the cross. He is the one that rose from the dead. And now let me get to my point. If you're going to hear anything, maybe you've been trailing off. Here is the point. I do not know why God does it. But I will remember his faithfulness in the past. And I will hold to that in my present. And in that, trusting that God is using what I'm going through now for his glory.
John Green was on this podcast. It's called the Heavyweight Podcast. I don't know if you ever heard Heavyweight Podcast before. It's amazing. It's really good. It's not a Christian podcast, so not recommending it to young people. So, But what they do on this Heavyweight Podcast is they they bring conversations of people that haven't talked in a long time back together, and you get to hear their conversations for the first time. It's kind of a reconciliation, if you will. So John Green was on this podcast. And what had happened is John had admitted that he had heard from this doctor in the break room that this, he thought the boy was going to die. This is 20 years later, right? And he thought to himself, maybe my overhearing this, an assumption, this, this boy might still be alive. So he Googled it. And he found out that he had lived through these burns. And he contacted this podcast and he said, uh, will you mediate a conversation? Because I want to know it, how he's doing. Just fascinating. Here you are listening to this podcast. John Green, this author, Fault in Our Stars, talking for the first time to this young boy who was three, who's now 23, about his life. He finds out that this now young man is in graduate school for his MBA. He loves his family. He, he has all the things that say living a good life. And they're having some good conversations on this podcast. And, but John's still wrestling. And John asks, this man's name is Nick. Nick, are you still in pain? This is what Nick says. Yes, there is constant pain. Yes, I would not like to have been burned on that day. And there's a daily struggle that comes with it. But that incident brought my family to Christ in a way it would not have happened otherwise. See, after the accident, the families in the community surrounded this family and brought them to church. And here, a non-Christian podcast author narrates and authors this those burns brought nick to the most important thing in his life to god well john is not satisfied with this and he keeps going how can you swear that that horrible thing happened to you to a kid and horrible things happen to other kids how do you swear that here it is, first time talking to this guy, and he's having these theodicy questions for him. And here's what this 23-year-old Nick says. You know, it was a harsh moment. Everything is used for the good. The Lord allows some evil, but evil works for his good. He brought my parents to faith. My grandfather, I had a relationship with him as he went and looked for ointments to ease my pain through those years, how I saw his love for me, teachers that surrounded me and cared for me. The Lord puts people in my life for a reason. And he said, he said this, I could merely be angry. I could merely go, how could this happen to you? 
But if I look at life like that, the enemy has won. You think it's over for John Green, this author. He's struggling. And even the podcast author is seeing his struggling. And in the struggling, John admits, you know what the crazy thing is? I didn't believe in God. And I didn't even believe in prayer. And he admits this. But every day, Nick, I prayed for you when I didn't pray for anything else. And Nick, this 23-year-old boy, man, says this. Maybe the person that benefited from those prayers was you. Maybe you're praying for me. Maybe that praying for me, my hope, is that it's kept the dialogue open between you and the Lord. And John Green, on this podcast, said, Nick, I never thought about it that way. And on the days I prayed for nothing else, I prayed for you and your family. And maybe that was a connection to God. Maybe some of you, you don't believe in the goodness of God the work on the cross, the resurrection, that he really does love you. But you pray to something. My hope is you might see clearly God's goodness. God is there. He works. He has worked. He is faithful. And like it says, the psalmist, he led your people like a flock. He can lead you. And Christian, and church, if you are consumed by life and pain, put down your phone. Put down the paper. Open God's word and see his faithfulness. Come here on Sunday morning and let's rejoice together in what he has done and his goodness. Church, Join a group of other Christians that might tell you the truth that God is faithful and he is good and he has worked and he continues to work. You need that continuously that you might remember and remember and remember because life, it just consumes us and we cannot think clearly in those moments but maybe someone else can help you see that there is a faithful God. You know what? I bet there's still some skeptics out there. I bet there's still some people out there that you still doubt, and that's okay. Because I'll tell you the truth. If you would have given me this sermon after I had heard what had happened at Panica Camp, and what my daughters were going through, I would tell you, just go shove it. We went down to Branson, Missouri, and picked up Ellie and Morgan. And we got to hear Aaron and I 
firsthand. Ellie's friend, Abigail, a junior at Purdue University, killed. She had become a Christian in high school through Young Life. Her parents were not Christians, and she told Ellie about this. And she told Ellie during work week that her prayer was that her parents would come to know the Lord. Then Ellie gave us a letter written by the director of the camp that was given to just the leadership of Kanaka Camp and to the staff. But I have permission to let you hear it too. Here is a letter days after this accident to the staff at Kanaka and the leadership of the camp from the director of the camp. Mentally and emotionally, God is doing a healing work in our team. They've been spending time together in prayer, reading scripture over one another, and processing their emotions and feelings. Yesterday, we spent five to six hours with Abigail's family. While it was extremely difficult and many tears were shed, they were welcomed into our camp family. We shared story after story of Abigail, who she was and how she impacted us. The time with them was absolutely tremendous, and we all fell in love with each other. Abigail's brother even went through the ropes course with one of the ropes guys. And though he was stoic and emotionless, he came down off the ropes course with a big smile and at ease. He even expressed that he wanted to come back next summer and serve in the role that his sister did. Abigail's father sent the family home and chose to stick around and spend the night with us. We enjoyed a special service by Joe White where he created a moment like only Joe can planting a dogwood tree in Abby's memory. Many of you heard, but in the, in the 30 hours following Abigail's death, we had 10 to 12 kids accept Christ, and we rejoiced in their salvation. But God wasn't done. After a two-hour conversation on the beachfront, Abigail's father was born again. For the first time, he confessed his sin and received forgiveness in Christ alone. It's a tradition at Kanakuk if someone comes to faith that they give them a Bible. They gave Abigail's father her Bible. I do not know why God does it. But I do know of his faithfulness. And in my present questioning, I will cling to that in hopes that I know that God is using what I am going through now for his 